Chapter 80. The Nut. If the sperm whale be physiognomically a sphinx, to the phrenologist his brain seems that geometrical circle which it is impossible to square. In the full-grown creature the skull will measure at least twenty feet in length. Unhinge the lower jaw, and the side view of this skull is as the side of a moderately inclined plane, resting throughout on a level base. But in life, as we have elsewhere seen, this inclined plane is angrily filled up and almost squared by the enormous superincumbent mass of the junk and sperm. At the high end, the skull forms a crater to bed that part of the mass. While under the long floor of this crater, in another cavity, seldom exceeding ten inches in length and as many in depth, reposes the mere handful of this monster's brain. The brain is at least twenty feet from his apparent forehead in life. It is hidden away behind its vast outworks, like the innermost citadel within the amplified fortifications of Quebec. So like a choice casket is it secreted in him, that I have known some whalemen who peremptorily deny that the sperm whale has any other brain than that palpable semblance of one formed by the cubic yards of his sperm magazine. Lying in strange folds, courses and convolutions to their apprehensions, it seems more in keeping with the idea of his general might to regard that mystic part of him as the seat of his intelligence. It is plain, then, that phrenologically the head of this leviathan in the creature's living intact state is an entire delusion. As for his true brain, you can then see no indications of it, nor feel any. The whale, like all things that are mighty, wears a false brow to the common world. If you unload his skull of its spermy heaps and then take a rear view of its rear end, which is the high end, you will be struck by its resemblance to the human skull, beheld in the same situation and from the same point of view. Indeed, place this reverse skull, scaled down to the human magnitude, among a plate of men's skulls, and you would involuntarily confound it with them, and remarking the depressions on one part of its summit, in phrenological phrase you would say, this man had no self-esteem and no veneration. And by those negations, considered along with the affirmative fact of his prodigious bulk and power, you can best form to yourself the truest, though not the most exhilarating conception of what the most exalted potency is. But if from the comparative dimensions of the whale's proper brain you deem it incapable of being adequately chartered, then I have another idea for you. If you attentively regard almost any quadruped's spine, you'll be struck with the resemblance of its vertebrae to a strung necklace of dwarfed skulls, all bearing rudimental resemblance to the skull proper. It is a German conceit that the vertebrae are absolutely undeveloped skulls. But the curious external resemblance, I take it the Germans were not the first men to perceive. A foreign friend once pointed out to me, in the skeleton of a foe he had slain, and with the vertebra of which he was inlaying, in a sort of basso relievo, the beaked prow of his canoe. Now, I consider that the phrenologists have omitted an important thing in not pushing their investigations from the cerebellum through the spinal canal. For I believe that much of a man's character will be found betokened in his backbone. I would rather feel your spine than your skull, whoever you are. A thin joist of a spine never yet upheld a full and noble soul. 
I rejoice in my spine, as in the firm, audacious staff of that flag which I fling half out to the world. Apply the spinal branch of phrenology to the sperm whale. His cranial cavity is continuous with the first neck vertebra, and in that vertebra the bottom of the spinal canal will measure ten inches across, being eight in height and of a triangular figure with the base downwards. As it passes through the remaining vertebra, the canal tapers in size, but for a considerable distance remains of large capacity. Now, of course, this canal is filled with much the same strangely fibrous substance, the spinal cord, as the brain, and directly communicates with the brain. And what is still more, for many feet after emerging from the brain's cavity, the spinal cord remains of an undecreasing girth, almost equal to that of the brain. Under all these circumstances, would it be unreasonable to survey and map out the whale's spine phrenologically? For viewed in this light, the wonderful comparative smallness of his brain proper is more than compensated by the wonderful comparative magnitude of his spinal cord. But, leaving this hint to operate as it may with the phrenologist, I would merely assume the spinal theory for a moment in reference to the sperm whale's hump. This august hump, if I mistake not, rises over one of the larger vertebra, and is, therefore, in some sort, the outer convex mold of it. From its relative situation, then, I should call this high hump the organ of firmness or indomitableness in the sperm whale, and that the great monster is indomitable, you will yet have reason to know. Chapter 81 The Pequod Meets the Virgin Part 1 The predestinated day arrived, and we duly met the ship Jungfrau, Derek de Deer, master of Bremen. At one time the greatest whaling people in the world, the Dutch and Germans are now among the least. But here and there at very wide intervals of latitude and longitude, you still occasionally meet with their flag in the Pacific. For some reason, the young Frau seemed quite eager to pay her respects. While yet some distance from the Pequod, she rounded to, and dropping a boat, her captain was impelled towards us, impatiently standing in the bows instead of the stern. "'What has he in his hand there?' cried Starbuck, pointing to something wavingly held by the German. "'Impossible! A lamp feeder!' "'Not that,' said Stubb. "'No, no, it's a coffee pot, Mr. Starbuck. "'He's coming off to make us our coffee in the Yarman. "'Don't you see that big tin can there alongside of him? "'That's his boiling water. "'Oh, he's all right. Is the Yarman. "'Go along with you,' cried Flask. "'It's a lamp feeder and an oil can. "'He's out of oil and has come a-begging.' "'However curious it may seem for an oil ship "'to be borrowing oil on the whale ground,' and however much it may invertedly contradict the old proverb about carrying coals to Newcastle. Yet sometimes such a thing really happens, and in the present case Captain Derek de Deer did indubitably conduct a lamp feeder, as Flask did declare. As he mounted the deck, Ahab abruptly accosted him, without at all heeding what he had in his hand. But in his broken lingo, the German soon evinced his complete ignorance of the white whale, immediately turning the conversation to his lamp feeder and oil can, 
with some remarks touching his having to turn into his hammock at night in profound darkness, his last drop of Bremen oil being gone, and not a single flying fish yet captured to supply the deficiency, concluding by hinting that his ship was indeed what in the fishery is technically called a clean one, that is, an empty one, well deserving the name of Jungfrau, or the Virgin. His necessity supplied, Derek departed, but he had not gained his ship's side when whales were almost simultaneously raised from the mastheads of both vessels, and so eager for the chase was Derek that without pausing to put his oil can and lamp feeder aboard, he slewed round his boat and made after the leviathan lamp feeders. Now, the game having risen to leeward, he and the three other German boats that soon followed him had considerably the start of the Pequod's keels. There were eight whales, an average pod. Aware of their danger, they were going all abreast with great speed, straight before the wind, rubbing their flanks as closely as so many spans of horses and harness. They left a great wide wake, as though continually unrolling a great wide parchment upon the sea. Full in this rapid wake, and many fathoms in the rear, swam a huge, humped old bull, which by his comparatively slow progress, as well as by the unusual, yellowish incrustations overgrowing him, seemed afflicted with the jaundice or some other infirmity. Whether this whale belonged to the pod in advance seemed questionable, for it is not customary for such venerable leviathans to be at all social. Nevertheless, he stuck to their wake, though indeed their backwater must have retarded him, because the white bone or swell at his broad muzzle was a dashed one, like the swell formed when two hostile currents meet. His spout was short, slow, and laborious, coming forth with a choking sort of gush, and spending itself in torn shreds, followed by strange subterranean commotions in him, which seemed to have egress at his other buried extremity, causing the waters behind him to up-bubble. "'Who's got some paragoric?' said Stubb. "'He has the stomach-ache, I'm afraid. "'Lord, think of having a half-acre of stomach-ache. "'Adverse winds are holding mad Christmas in him, boys. "'It's the first foul wind I ever knew to blow from astern. "'But look, did ever whale yaw so before? "'It must be. He's lost his tiller.' As an overladen India man bearing down the Hindustan coast with a deckload of frightened horses, careens, berries, rolls, and wallows on her way, so did this old whale heave his aged bulk, and now and then, partly turning over on his cumbrous rib-ends, expose the cause of his devious wake in the unnatural stump of his starboard fin. Whether he had lost that fin in battle, or had been born without it, it were hard to say. "'Only wait a bit, old chap, and I'll give ye a sling for that wounded arm,' cried Cruel Flask, pointing to the whale line near him. "'Mind he don't give sling thee with it,' cried Starbuck. "'Give way, or the German will have him.' With one intent, all the combined rival boats were pointed for this one fish, because not only was he the largest and therefore the most valuable whale, but he was nearest to them, and the other whales were going with such great velocity, moreover, as almost to defy pursuits for the time. At this juncture, the Pequod's keels 
had shot by the three German boats last lowered. But from the great start, he had, Derek's boat still led the chase, though every moment neared by his foreign rivals. The only thing they feared was that from being already so nigh to his mark, he would be enabled to dart his iron before they could completely overtake and pass him. As for Derek, he seemed quite confident that this would be the case, and occasionally with a deriding gesture shook his lamp feeder at the other boats. "'The ungracious and ungrateful dog!' cried Starbuck. "'He mocks and dares me with the very poor box I felt for him not five minutes ago.' Then, in his old intense whisper, "'Give way, greyhounds, dog to it!' "'I tell ye what it is, men,' cried Stubb to his crew. "'It's against my religion to get mad. "'But I'd like to eat that villainous yarman. "'Pull, won't ye? "'Are ye going to let that rascal beat ye? "'Do ye love brandy? "'A hogshead of brandy, then, to the best man. "'Come, why don't some of ye burst a blood vessel? "'Who's that been dropping an anchor overboard? "'We don't budge an inch. "'We're becalmed. "'Hello, here's grass growing in the boat's bottom.' "'and by the Lord the mass there's budding. "'This won't do, boys. "'Look at that yarman. "'The short and long of it is, men. "'Will ye spit fire or not?' "'Oh, see the suds he makes,' cried Flask, "'dancing up and down. "'What a hump! "'Oh, do pile on the beef. "'Lays like a log. "'Oh, my lads, do spring. "'Baked clams and muffins. "'Oh, do, do spring. "'He's a hundred bearer. "'Don't lose him now. "'Don't, oh, don't. "'See that yarman?' "'Won't ye pull for your duff, my lads? "'Such a sog, such a sogger. "'Don't ye love sperm? "'There goes three thousand dollars, men. "'A bank, a whole bank, the Bank of England. "'Oh, do, do, do. "'What's that yarman about now?' "'At this moment Derek was in the act "'of pitching his lamp feeder at the advancing boats "'and also his oil can, "'perhaps with the double view of retarding his rival's way.' and at the same time economically accelerating his own by the momentary impetus of the backward toss. "'The unmannerly Dutch dogger!' cried Stubb. "'Pull now, men, like fifty thousand line-of-battleship loads of red-haired devils. "'What do you say, Tashtigo? "'Are you the man to snap your spine in two-and-twenty pieces for the honor of old Gayhead? "'What do you say?' "'I say, pull like goddamn!' cried the Indian." Fiercely but evenly incited by the taunts of the German, the Pequod's three boats now began ranging almost abreast, and, so disposed, momentarily neared him. In that fine, loose, chivalrous attitude of the headsman, when drawing near to his prey, the three mates stood up proudly, occasionally backing the after-oarsman with an exhilarating cry of, "'There she slides now! Hurrah for the white ash breeze! Down with the yarman! Sail over him!' But so decided an original start had Derek had, that spite of all their gallantry, he would have proved the victor in this race, had not a righteous judgment descended upon him in a crab which caught the blade of his midship oarsman. While this clumsy lubber was striving to free his white ash, and while in consequence Derek's boat was nigh to capsizing, and he thundering away at his men in a mighty rage, that was a good time for Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask. With a shout, they took a mortal start forwards and slantingly ranged up on the German's quarter. An instant more, and all four boats were diagonal in the whale's immediate wake, 
while stretching from them on both sides was the foaming swell that he made. It was a terrific, most pitiable and maddening sight. The whale was now going head out and sending his spout before him in a continual tormented jet, while his one poor fin beat his side in an agony of fright. Now to this hand, now to that, he yawed in his faltering flight, and still at every billow that he broke, he spasmodically sank in the sea, or sideways rolled towards the sky his one beating fin. So have I seen a bird with clipped wing making affrighted broken circles in the air, vainly striving to escape the piratical hawks. But the bird has a voice, and with plaintive cries will make known her fear, but the fear of this vast dumb brute of the sea was chained up and enchanted in him. He had no voice, save that choking respiration through his spiracle, and this made the sight of him unspeakably pitiable. While still in his amazing bulk, portcullis jaw, and omniscient tail, there was enough to appall the stoutest man who so pitied. Seeing now that but a very few moments more would give the Pequod's boats the advantage— and rather than be thus foiled of his game, Derrick chose to hazard what to him must have seemed a most unusually long dart, ere the last chance would forever escape. But no sooner did his harpooner stand up for the stroke than all three tigers, Queequeg, Tashtigo, Dagoo, instinctively sprang to their feet and standing in a diagonal row simultaneously pointed their barbs and darted over the head of the German harpooner their three Nantucket irons entered the whale. Blinding vapors of foam and white fire. The three boats, in the first fury of the whale's headlong rush, bumped the Germans aside with such force that both Derek and his baffled harpooner were spilled out and sailed over by the three flying keels. "'Don't be afraid, my butterboxes,' cried Stubb, casting a passing glance upon them as he shot by." "'You'll be picked up presently, all right. "'I saw some sharks astern. "'St. Bernard's dogs, you know, "'relieve distressed travelers. "'Hurrah! "'This is the way to sail now. "'Every keel a sunbeam. "'Hurrah! "'Here we go like three tin kettles "'at the tail of a mad cougar. "'This puts me in mind of fastening to an elephant "'in a tilbury on a plane. "'Makes the wheel spokes fly, boys, "'when you fasten to him that way.' and there's danger of being pitched out, too, when you strike a hill. Hurrah, this is the way a fellow feels when he's going to Davy Jones, all a rush down an endless inclined plain. Hurrah, this whale carries the everlasting mail. But the monster's run was a brief one. Giving a sudden gasp, he tumultuously sounded. With a grating rush, the three lines flew round the loggerheads with such a force as to gouge deep grooves in them. While so fearful were the harpooners that this rapid sounding would soon exhaust the lines, that using all their dexterous might, they caught repeated smoking turns with the rope to hold on. Till at last, owing to the perpendicular strain from the lead-lined chocks of the boats, whence the three ropes went straight down into the blue, the gunwalls of the bows were almost even with the water, while the three sterns tilted high in the air. And the whale, soon ceasing to sound, for some time they remained in that attitude, fearful of expending more line, though the position was a little ticklish. 
But though boats have been taken down and lost in this way, yet it is this holding on, as it is called, this hooking up by the sharp barbs of his live flesh from the back. This it is that often torments the Leviathan into soon rising again to meet the sharp lance of his foes. Yet, not to speak of the peril of the thing, it is to be doubted whether this course is always the best. For it is but reasonable to presume that the longer the stricken whale stays under water, the more he is exhausted. Because, owing to the enormous surface of him, in a full-grown sperm whale something less than 2,000 square feet, the pressure of the water is immense. We all know what an astonishing atmospheric weight we ourselves stand up under, even here above ground, in the air. How vast, then, the burden of a whale, bearing on his back a column of 200 fathoms of ocean. It must at least equal the weight of 50 atmospheres. One whaleman has estimated it at the weight of twenty line of battleships, with all their guns and stores and men on board. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.